I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hi, everyone. It's me, Katie Couric. I'm back. But just for this bonus episode, the third season of Next Question will actually be launching on February 25th. And we've got some really exciting people lined up for you. But in the meantime, I wanted to share a very important and fascinating conversation I had this week. Great to see you all. I'm so happy to be here with my friends from the 92nd Street Y. I'm coming to you tonight from Los Angeles. The 92nd Street Y invited me to moderate a talk with the founding members of the Lincoln Project. You might have heard of them this election season. They're a super PAC started by former Republicans who wanted to defeat Donald Trump and, in fact, hold accountable all those who violate their oath to the Constitution, regardless of party. I was joined, remotely, of course, by a political powerhouse trio, Jennifer Horn, Reed Gallen, and Steve Schmidt. Our conversation was recorded on Tuesday, January 26th. We're sharing it with you here with just some light editing. So enjoy. Given uh, what has happened in recent weeks and months, do you all feel that our democracy is in fact in jeopardy? Um, Steve, since you're the least opinionated, I'll start with you. What happened on January 6th was, was the following. Incited to violence, a collection of white supremacists, white nationalists, conspiracy theorists, uh, fascist proud boys, uh, extremist militias attacked the United States Capitol. Um, and the Capitol fell to them. The American flag was ripped down. MAGA flag was, was raised in its place. American flag was used to bludgeon a Capitol police officer. Why were they there? Why were they there on January 6th? Well, they were there because there was a constitutionally mandated process that's a moment of majesty, right? That involves the peaceful transition of power that's been uninterrupted in this country since 1797. So when you think about all of the great things that have been invented in America, airplanes, television, spaceships that can land and return from the moon, the internet, 
right? The list goes on. The greatest invention in all the history of the country is the peaceful transition of power. George III asked, what would Washington do? And he was told that Washington would go home. And he said, if he does that, he'll be the greatest man of this or any age. Literally the first human being in 2000 years who could have been an emperor to walk away from the power. John Adams, the first president defeated, as Reed points out, an election decided in the House of Representatives, he leaves. The process of the transfer of power was not stopped, but it wasn't peaceful. It was blood soaked. And it was blood soaked because that mob was incited by the president to decertify certified state elections and to disenfranchise millions of black votes. We'll talk more about that in a, in a second. But why were they there? They were there because they were incited by lying. We should understand something about National Socialism, Nazism, and the fascist movement. Anti-Semitism was a feature, not the foundation. Foundation of it was the lie. So on lies, they were incited. And the lie they were incited about was that the freest and fairest election in American history was in fact stolen. Stolen by who? By those people. Those people in the inner cities. Black Americans. And so they were incited. Democracy is fueled, sustained by faith and belief in the legitimacy of the system. And so of all the terrible things that Trump did over his four catastrophic years, including his complicity through his lying and incompetence and malfeasance, the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people that didn't have to die because of COVID, including that, including the Cajun and orphaning of children, including that, the worst thing he did was what he did at the end, when he poisoned faith and belief in American democracy, incited by a president, the Capitol falls. And then 147 members of Congress rise for the purpose of disenfranchising millions of black Americans with the vote for the purpose of installing into the presidency for a second term, the person who lost, as opposed to the person who won, which would have led to the fall of the American Republic in its 244th year, if that action would have been successful. So we have the propagandists, we have the financiers, we have the cynical elites like Josh Hawley, we have all of the ecosystem around the charismatic cult of personality. This is an autocratic movement that 40% of the country would vote for if the election were tomorrow as a floor. This is, this is a serious threat to American democracy for certain. In fact, Reed, you know, I was shocked when I read these statistics last night. 32% of Americans still insist that Joe Biden was not the legitimate winner of the election. And 21%, 21% of Americans say they either strongly support or somewhat somewhat support the storming of the Capitol. Read. I mean, this is still today. 
And Jennifer, I want you to weigh on this too, weigh in on this as well. But how, how could that be? How could, you know, how did we get here? And how could those, those people still respond that way? Well, how we got here, I think, is, is a longer story that needs to be told in its own right. Um, but I think that if you look at this, you know, through even going back to 2015 in the fall, uh, when candidate Trump was running, remember that he started to delegitimize the, the outcome then when he thought he was going to lose uh, to Hillary Clinton. Um, he always made himself, you know, a victim of the press, a victim of his opponents. Uh, and then as we saw last, last year, he started the same thing to delegitimize the process again, whether or not that was absentee balloting, mail-in balloting, early voting, um, you know, whatever it was, because if, again, in case he could lose or would lose, uh, he needed to have an excuse. In fact, Mary Trump, the president's niece, who we spoke with many times throughout the course of this campaign, said this is what was going to happen. She said that something like this was going to happen. And, and we talked to her, I think, in May or June of last year. And we started saying we had we had been saying to folks, supporters and others, you know, the, the campaign's over when we defeat Donald Trump. We changed that. We said this campaign isn't over until Joe Biden takes the oath of office on January 20th, because we understood, and I think Mary was hugely helpful to our understanding of this, is that so long as Donald Trump feels personally, literally physically safe in whatever it is he does, he does not care about the outside world. And so he gives that speech. He watches these people marching. He's sitting in the residence of the White House. He's in a fortress surrounded by men and women who are dedicated and you know, promised to give their lives on his behalf if necessary. He feels no compunction no compunction whatsoever about what he's seeing. What is he most upset about? That they're not as well-dressed as he'd like them to be. So where did we get to this place? Um, first and foremost, it starts with the leader. As you know, Steve has a, a, a lineup of seven pieces of Trumpism that we'll be making more public here as we go forward. But the point is, is that he systematically convinced somewhere between a quarter and a third of the country uh, that everything he said was correct. You had a bunch of otherwise probably normal Republicans, as Jennifer can attest to, who just decided this is the way it was going to go. And then I think lastly, um, you know, we, something we were talking about right before we joined the crowd, which was, you know, you cannot underestimate the effect that Fox, OANN, uh, Newsmax, Twitter, Facebook especially, I think Facebook is, a, is an open sewer pipe into American society. All of these places where these folks gathered, where they got themselves spun up, where this information, whether or not it was QAnon or whatever it was, went back and forth. And ultimately, what you saw was a bunch of people, frankly, in, you know, in sort of tech parlance, jumped the air gap. They went from social media to the real world. And what we saw was January 6th. Will you, Jennifer, speak on behalf of, of the normal Republicans that Reid referred to, people who might have supported President Trump because of policy reasons, who weren't necessarily buying into every aspect of the cult of personality, but we're on the same page in terms of tax cuts and deregulation and stimulating the economy and some of the other positions he held. I mean, what percentage of those 74 million people constitute people who, who felt more aligned policy-wise with this, with this former president? Um, I would like to believe it was the majority of them, that it was a, a large number of them. Um, I think when, you know, first of all, I'm no longer a Republican. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I left the party and registered as an independent. And the reason was it was before January 6th, but it was what was leading up to it that pushed me to make that move. Finally, I believe that the majority of the Republicans who voted for Donald Trump fully reject what happened on January 6th. 
that that is not their headspace, that that is not what they were looking for. But I think it's really important as we, you know, to Reed's point, the story of how we got here is a long story and that could be a conversation all by itself. But how did we get to, you know, how did we get to this moment? How did we have such a rapid deterioration over the last four years? It wasn't because of Donald Trump. It was because of the Republican Party. The Republican Party and the activists and the uh, the, the leaders and the, you know, the Ronna Romney McDaniels of the world and the state party chairs and the, the state party committees, they gave Donald Trump a home. They created an arena, a playing field for Donald Trump, and they were all in at any time at the beginning of Trump's presidency, Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy, you know, any group of actual Republican leaders could have come together uh, with a show of force, a show of political force and reigned this president in. It's the Republican Party that empowered him and that welcomed that 32% that you were just talking about. They gave a home to those people who, you know, tore down the American flag, who threw um, a, a, um, a fire extinguisher at a Capitol police officer, ultimately killing him, um, who, you know, went in there with the intention. We have to be really clear about what happened on the 6th. Their intention, their vocalized intention was to overturn a free, fair, legitimate American election and kill some of people in the process. They hung a noose and went looking for Mike Pence. The Republican Party gave those people a home. And what we see happening at this moment going forward, even though Trump has lost, that you know that was the party's moment to say, okay, we're gonna reset. Instead, they are fully embracing everything that Trump stood for. And instead of trying to put it behind them, they are building the future of the party on those people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. It seems to me, Steve, there was a critical moment that would have allowed more moderate Republicans to recapture the Republican Party, and that was the impeachment vote in the House of Representatives. Now, it was the largest, the most bipartisan impeachment in history, yet only 10 Republicans supported impeachment. Um, can you help us understand, and all three of you please weigh in on this, some of our elected officials, Republicans, who seem so terrified about speaking out still against Donald Trump? Is it because they do not want to alienate his base? They do not want to be primaried. They want to hold on to power. But, you know, it's 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 still shocking to a lot of people that morality has not um, eclipsed political ambition. Well, we live in an age of cowardice, political cowardice in the extreme, uh, the likes of which, despite politics always being a business that the American people held in somewhat low esteem, right? I mean, character of politicians in a free republic has always been fair game, and American people have always been hard on, on their politicians in that, in that regard. What we, what we have now are people that are faithless to the idea and ideals of the country and, and to their oaths. They live in terror of being tweeted at by Donald Trump. And so they sacrificed over the last four years every principle that they held. I just want to say something and just go around very quickly the flywheel of the elements that are necessary for an autocratic movement to take root. The first is the leader, right? 
Donald Trump is clearly the leader. Second are the propagandists, the people that rely, right, and sustain the leader's lies and turn those lies into lies of authority, where what's true is what the leader says, despite what evidence refutes it, whether that's evidence before your eyes or intellectual evidence about the election. Straight lie from Sean Spicer's first lie, the inaugural lie, to the stolen election lie. Lies of authority that require the suspension of disbelief. Right? But that's not enough. Right? It's not enough to have the propagandists. Not enough to have the followers. You need the cynicism of the elites. You need the Josh Hollies. You need the Kevin McCarthy's. You need the Ted Cruz's. The people who are arrogant enough to believe that they can ride the tiger. Josh Hawley has contempt like I can't describe for those people that sit outside dressed in Viking horns and vests. It's contempt for them. They're an ends to a means. Right? But that's not enough. You need the sheep. Right? The go-along, get-along people who accommodate this because it's easier. I don't want the Trump people calling me. Right? If you can, as Republican members said, look, I'm getting death threats. Then if you can't discharge your duties, resign from your job because you took an oath to the Constitution of the United States. But when you when you look at that flywheel, right, the cynicism of the elites like Holly combined with the sheep gets you to where we are. And so when you look at the House now, right, the determinative vote is the January 6th vote where 140 House members voted to throw out the election. There are reasons, though I profoundly disagree with them, where people of good faith could differ about the question of impeachment in the final weeks of a president's term. Not on the vote on the January 6th. And so what you have in the House is Liz Cheney is the leader of the House conservatives. Kevin McCarthy is the leader of the House autocrats. Liz Cheney is the leader of the Republican Democracy Caucus, which is smaller than the House Autocracy Caucus. And so this conflict that Kevin McCarthy seems to be brewing because he's weak and cornered, because corporate America is walking away from financing any of these people involved on that January 6th vote, right, the party will get more extreme, right? In 22, right, the QAnon wing of the Republican Party is going to roll over the establishment wing like the Wehrmacht did the Belgian army in 1940. There are four state parties, right, growing, not shrinking, that are held and controlled by QAnon people, the Oregon Party, the California Party, the Texas Party. The Arizona party, right? These are, the Texas party has QAnon mottos as its mottos. So, so, so Trump holds the party, he holds the levers of power in the party. The state parties are increasingly controlled by the conspiracy theorists and the grassroots energy of the party and the people who tend to vote in the primaries are the people who believe the election was stolen. As the next presidential campaign begins, the first article of faith used to be you had to go to Iowa or New Hampshire and establish your conservative bona fides. 
Now, the first requirement of being a serious candidate will be to embrace the big lie that the election was stolen, that Trump was betrayed. He was betrayed by these apostate Republicans like the secretary of state in Georgia, the governor of Georgia, or the list of their villains. Betrayed, the stab in the back theory is always part of this. And that's where all of this is going. But here's the good news. <laughs> Please. Here is the good news. Though that is terrible for the Republican Party, as that fire consumes the Republican Party, we want it to burn. Let it burn hot. Because the hotter it burns, the smaller the chances of these people winning a national election. Because they will shrink as part of a national footprint. And hopefully over the next six to eight years, this movement will disappear or be put back underground because it is brought to electoral submission. We can never lose a national election to this coalition of people ever again, because if we do, it may be the last election we have. They don't like them. Okay, Steve, hold on, breathe. So Steve is saying it's gonna take six to eight years for this whole movement to burn out. So that means 2024. I mean, what is going to happen? A lot of people are commenting, okay, we get it, but what can be done about this, if anything? Steve, you made it sound like a fait accompli that this, this you know, part of the party is going to continue to rise and continue to have more power. Reed, do you agree? And what about the prospect of Donald Trump starting his own party, the Patriot Party? What impact will that have on the cohesion within the Republican Party? Could it burn out faster and could moderates kind of rise up in, in opposition? Well, I mean, I think I do agree, you know, with, with what Steve has said. I think, look, um, Rob Portman, senator from Ohio, long, long considered a a moderate Republican announced that he's not running for reelection. Um, he's not running for reelection for a couple of reasons. Probably one is because he just doesn't want to hang out with these people anymore and who can blame him. And two, because he probably saw what I think we had seen for a while, which is he wasn't going to win a primary in Ohio next year. Um, whoever Trump's chosen candidate was, was going to get all of Trump's support. They would, they would roll over uh, Portman, um, who is not equipped to handle a fight. Like this. And, I, and they're and so saying would, Jim Jordan, right? Jim Jordan might uh, might he might. But I mean, so here's some here's a little bit of good news is that if if we get truly like QAnon MAGA people running for the U.S. Senate next year in primaries and they win, you could have another 2010 like we saw with the with the Tea Party in which these Republicans are so far outside the mainstream that even regular human beings such as that we have left won't have anything to do with them. So I think that goes to Steve's point about them burning out. Um, look, I think the good news here is I think we should look back to this past election, um, at least on Joe Biden's election, which was, you know, 80 million, 81 million Americans chose Joe Biden. Now, there's a whole bunch of discussion about why these other 74 million made the choice they did, but let's stick with this. Biden built the, you know, one of the largest, broadest, and deepest coalitions in American presidential history. Um, I think what you're seeing is an awakening by many, many Americans who may not be Republicans or Democrats or partisans of any kind, even if they're registered, that we have taken this for granted for too long, um, that we sat back on our heels. We didn't care. We don't like our politicians. We don't think it matters anyway. My vote doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. And I think you're starting to see that. I think you're starting to see people of all stripes, again, from states and cities across the country 
who are now waking up and understanding that we must take control. Uh, I thought it was fascinating that Josh Hawley, uh, who might be the whiniest wannabe dictator that ever lived, second only to Donald Trump, said that he did not believe that it was American citizens' rights to criticize him uh, as an elected official for his actions. I mean, if I mean, this guy's a constitutional attorney. He, he clerked for John Roberts at the Supreme Court. He is not a stupid guy. He just is a sensitive guy, and he understood that people started standing up against him. I think what you've seen with corporate America running for the hills from these people is a sign that when Americans can individually and then collectively stand up, that they can and will take the people to account that need it. But again, the thing is we cannot allow is we cannot allow, A, that these people to go, uh, you know, um, they must be held accountable. Uh, and B, we must keep folks focused on what it is we're doing, which is we must, must, must win in 22 and we must win in 24. As, as Steve said, he noted, Ronald Reagan once said, we're only one generation or generation away from losing democracy. We're now one election. Away. And so is it possible? It is. Is the fight going to be easy? It's not. And it's not going to be short. Six to eight years is the short run. 20 years is the long run. I mean, mm. what we saw here is, um, you know, Trump let we invited Trump, the vampire into the house, and he let all the other vampires into the house, too. Right. We're going to have to push them all back out again. And it's going to be race by race, state by state, legislature by legislature. And it's going to take all of us who really believe that none of the rest of this is possible. Um, you know, when, when I mean America and bending the arc of justice, uh, you know, the arc of history towards justice and a freer and fairer and more equitable America, a more prosperous America. If you want those things, then democracy is the only way, because as we know, authoritarianism never leads to that. More with the founders of the Lincoln Project right after this. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God. We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, guys. You know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Let's return to my conversation with the founders of the Lincoln Project. Jennifer, do you think I want to ask you about the prospect of, of Donald Trump forming his own party 
and how that changes the equation at all. And secondarily, demographics are changing significantly in this country. By 2044, there's going to be a majority minority population. Many of these Trump supporters, uh, you know, are older, mostly white. Can you address both those things, Jennifer? When I was chairman in New Hampshire, I used to, one of the things I used to say to, you know, county committees when I was driving around the state is that the party's not going to die if we lose, with all due respect, the party's not going to die if we lose a bunch of over 65 angry white people. The party dies when you lose young people, when you lose, um, you know, first generation voters, when you lose minority voters, when African-American voters or Lat uh, Latino voters. And, you know, that's, that's when the party dies. And we lost those people. We have lost th those voters. Although, the, sorry to interrupt, Jennifer. I mean, I think Donald Trump did surprisingly well <laughs> with, I mean, uh, with Latinos and even some black voters. Uh, yeah. Democrats need to pay attention to that, do they not? Absolutely. And you're right, especially about Latino voters. Absolutely. Um, but our party is not speaking to the and, and here's a, a small piece of it that that I you know, you know, we should highlight, too, because one of the things that the Republican Party will tell you is that Donald Trump turned out more voters than any other, you know, candidate and within these parameters ever before 74 million, 74.2 million voters. Uh, Joe Biden turned out over 80 million voters. Like we have this, we had this tremendous surge of um, of interest, of engagement, of you know electoral engagement in this um, in this campaign. And I think that that really is a reflection, more a reflection of where we are as a country um, than a lot of other things. The the division is clear, the division is obvious. But I think those people are coming forward and engaging. But uh, kind of to, back to the original point that the, the Republican Party is not speaking to those voters who are who are rising up. And if they can't, if they continue to not be able to do that, they're going to continue to lose elections. Um, as far as the idea of a, a new party, you know, I, I strategically, I don't really get it frankly, from Donald Trump's point of view, because if he starts a Patriot Party, he doesn't get to put candidates in Republican primaries, does he? Like, it's, I'm not sure that it advances his influence and his power to the maximum degree possible. But there's no question that re, whether he decides to try to poison Republican primaries or, you know, roll out some kind of new party, there's no question that Donald Trump's influence is going to be to weaken the Republican Party, to divide Republican voters. It's Republican candidates who will lose uh, elections as a result of what he's doing, uh, what he's trying to do in, you know, the idea of this Patriot Party. Um, the problem in bigger than that, however, is, is not that Donald Trump is in this moment able to have that influence. I go back to what I said at the beginning. The problem is that the entire the Republican Party leadership continues to embrace him. They want to give him that party. They are they are embracing the idea of Donald Trump having that kind of influence. They are taking Trumpism forward and making this conscious choice not to leave it behind, even though uh, he has lost the election. It's I, well, I guess my point is always I put the responsibility on party leaders. It's not Donald Trump. They gave Donald Trump the influence that he has. It's the party leaders that I hold accountable. Can I, and, and, Katie, can I just say one thing about yeah, the, um, because you, you, you brought this up. I mean, the one thing you noted and you were absolutely right was that, that Trump gained with, with non-college educated Latinos and African-American yes. men. 
And, and I think what we see there is a couple of things. One is that I think that among Latinos, right? I mean, look, one of my best friends, my best man, uh, his parents are from Mexico. And he always says the, the problem with you white people is that you think we're all the same. When of course there's, you know, Puerto Ricans, there's Cubans, there's Mexicans, there's Hondurans, there's, you know, what you name it. They all have their own cultures. They, they all have their own view of the world that, you know, we sort of say, okay, well, they're Latinos in Texas. Therefore, we're just going to talk to them like this. Um, we should also understand that, you know, a lot of Latinos are doing what the country has long asked of our immigrants to do. They are assimilating. So they may be of Latino descent as I am of Irish descent, right? But that may or may not any longer sort of in, you know, indicate how I'm going to vote for something. And then I think also there's the piece of, you know, if there, you know, I always use this idea of there's, there's a six man crew on the I-4 corridor in Orlando, Florida in August, right? It's 900 degrees, right? There's three white guys, two Latinos and an African-American. They may not go to the same place when they go home at night. Their kids might not go to the same schools, but when they're standing out there and they watch the rich lady in the Range Rover drive by, they probably feel pretty similar about the world. Now, that's not an excuse to storm the Capitol, right? But it should indicate to us that there are a whole heck of a lot of voters in this country who Democrats used to own lock, stock, and barrel that now feel like they have no place to go. And with, with left no, nowhere to go, they are making a bad choice. Not all the time. Remember, I mean, Trump is still losing African-Americans 82 to 18 or whatever right. it is. It's an, right. but, but it could be a trend that, that Democrats should pay attention to because, again, as I said, none of this occurs in a vacuum. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So, what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Let's jump back into my conversation with the founders of the Lincoln Project. I asked Steve Schmidt what he thinks Donald Trump will do now. Well, I think he's the leader of America's autocratic political movement. I think he controls the Republican Party. I think he is prey. I think he's going to be hunted. 
um, hunted by jurisdictions in the states, um, by his creditors. I think there's going to be tremendous reluctance to do deal flow with Donald Trump. But I think Donald Trump, um, you know, from the incitement issues, legal jeopardy there, legal jeopardy, I think, with tax issues in the state of New York, um, he has $300 million with creditors coming due. I think it's going to be very hard for Trump to get the money he needs. And I, I think he's pursued for the balance of his, of his life. But he will yield considerable political power inside the Republican Party, maybe maintaining his complete hold on it. But that movement should be shrinking as he does that in the short, in the short to medium term, hopefully. Well, I was going to say, you know, he's the one that famously said he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose any supporters. Jennifer, do you think all these the, the, the legal repercussions of some of his activities, some all these different lawsuits in different jurisdictions, whether we're talking about Georgia or New York, wherever, do you think it will actually have an impact on Trumpism per se? Um, I think that he's likely to lose some percentage of support if you're talking about like polling. Do you or don't you support Donald Trump? I think there are going to be more Republicans in particular who are willing to say, um, you know, he, he shouldn't run again, things like that. I don't think it's going to have a significant um, uh, impact on his re the real influence that he has over the party, you know, in the um, in the in the immediate future, you know, the next four to eight years. Um, I think that that group of Republicans who are with Donald Trump are, to your point, with him, no matter what he does, standing out in the middle of Fifth Avenue. Um, so I, I and I think that what we're going to see um, is an expansion of an increase of this conspiracy mentality, this big lie mentality kind of grow, kind of you know, making its way through the Republican Party. Everything is going to have to be a big lie now. It's 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 going to be that the courts and, you know, the Second District of New York are all conspiring against Donald Trump, that Deutsche Bank is lying to take down Don Donald Trump. You know what? It, it's all going to become part for the, for his base. This is all just going to continue to feed that idea that the entire world is somehow lying about and conspiring to take down Trump. I think that's going to continue to fuel the Republican Party in a great to a great degree. Well, Reed, you know, obviously the information superhighway, as we once called the Internet, is is the, <laughs> the road uh, where the big lie is perpetuated and delivered sure. to people's homes and reinforced. Um, will any kind of tech regulation uh, put, you know, dampen this kind of messaging and this kind of orthodoxy or is the genie simply out of the bottle, Reed? Uh, you know, I. We, you know, it's uh, what does it say? You can't you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Yes. Like Facebook is like, you know, is like yelling fire in a crowded theater the size of the United States. You know, it's it, it, it doesn't get to claim I'm just a platform and therefore I can do anything I want and the people on it can do anything they want. And I, I single out Facebook just because they're the biggest and the baddest. I mean, you have Steve, you have a guy like Steve Bannon who says I want to behead the FBI director and Dr. Fauci, I'm going to stick their heads on pikes. And Zuckerberg goes into an employee meeting and says, well, that's not really a violation of our terms of service. It's not. How is that possible? If I said that, right, if I said it on my Facebook page, which I don't have, my guess is the FBI would be knocking on my door. But because it's Steve Bannon, it's okay. Um, and so I think they do have responsibility. I mean, I, I like to say this, like Facebook, 
all of this technology that we're on right now, none of this would exist but for a bunch of nerds in the Pentagon basement 40 years ago, right? So I, I, once in a while, I'd like Mr. Zuckerberg to remember like, that without all of this, he wouldn't be where he sits. Now, if he doesn't want to be an American company, he can move to Singapore, wherever it's going to be. Um, but I would venture to say that the reason why he was so in on Trump's victory was because he knows that so long as a Trump is in, in power, there's no antitrust coming for him. Under a Biden administration, much harder to say. Um, and so is, is the genie out of the bottle? It's, it is. Um, but I would say this, is that when you see even Facebook, uh, YouTube, and Twitter pushing Trump off of those platforms, uh, it pushes you know, the supporters further and, fur and further into the fringes. And here's what I would say, is that the amount of friction that, is in, that, hap that happens when, that hap when he's on Gab and Parler instead of Twitter and Facebook I think does dramatically increase the amount of work it takes for somebody to find what he's saying. And I think those are a lot of places where otherwise sort of what I would call casual Trump supporters, and I don't even know what that means really, uh, aren't going to go to those places, right? If you didn't just pick up your phone and see what he's saying, but you've got to go to some place you wouldn't otherwise go, uh, I think that that could be very harmful to him. And I think Jennifer was right. I think there were a, a lot of Americans and Republicans, even Trump supporters, who saw what they saw at the Capitol on the 6th and were beside themselves and didn't want anything to do with it. It was it was amazing to me, Jennifer, how quickly uh, conservative media was able to pivot from the insurrection on January 6th and what happened there to cries of censorship once right. Donald Trump was taken off Twitter. And I'm curious if you all think that uh, that he should be taken off permanently off social media or is that going to create even more problems and a bigger rallying cry for his supporters? Steve, why don't you? Well, either one of you, Steve or Jennifer, you want to take that? I'll just say that grievance is the high octane fuel of Trumpism. It always has been. Um, but look, Twitter has ter uh, terms of service, right? They have policies. He violates the policies. He's incited violence and insurrection. And they, made and they have said, they have said, Steve, that they're taking him off permanently off Twitter. Now, now um, I, I do think, right, it raises a, a larger question. I say this as a First Amendment absolutist. Um, the concentration of power in the hands of the tech overlords is too much. And so here we are in the third decade of the 21st century, right? If you just back up a couple of, of years, right, and you look at Mark Zuckerberg's tour around America that had the trappings of a presidential campaign, or you look at the speculation around Sheryl Sandberg, or you look even that the society bestows some type of credibility, some type of wisdom on Mark Zuckerberg, right? Because he built Facebook, right? And so because Mark Zuckerberg is worth $35 billion and he's 27, right? Mark Zuckerberg might have relevant opinions on all these other subjects. Um, I think that what we've discovered is he's a pretty shallow thinker about most subjects other than Facebook. And so when we look at the totality of the power of the tech industry, it's time as a society through our political processes to evaluate that much in the same way, slightly over 100 years ago, Teddy Roosevelt looked at giving the American people a square deal when you look at the concentration of power and wealth into few, few too, uh, too few hands. And so I just want to say something real quick. I mean, we're talking about how did 74 million people vote for Trump? 
40% of this country doesn't have $400 cash available for an emergency. Their dignity has been stripped away. And so they hear the siren song of the demagogue who wants to smash everything because the system they were taught to believe in hasn't delivered for them. I mean, we, we need to have the humility right, to understand that. And I think we need to look at all of these companies and understand right, that we have a problem with big in this country, right? We, whether it's big business, big media, big tech, big finance, big politics, everywhere you see big, you see the little guy getting it. And I think that in this era, when we look at these tech companies and everything else, proper scrutiny of big, right, at the expense of a concept of the public good is an area of politics that's a really fruitful one that we ought to be talking about because too much of this debate is the same stuff we've been talking about with increasingly little relevance for the last 40 years. So, so is it worth, I mean, how do you make some of the disenfranchised voters in this country, Reed, feel more included in the process? Somebody is asking, uh, is there really any point in trying to convert any of the 74 million who voted to reelect the former president? It seems the strategy needs to be outnumber them at the polls versus trying to convince these people the earth is round when they believe it is flat. Um, so, you know, I guess there, there are two approaches, right? Can you, is it, is it too late to make many of these people who did support Donald Trump, who are angry? You know, I watched this movie Nomadland last night with Frances McDormand, and it's about people who live in vans. And my husband and I said, you can understand why people are just so frustrated. They're, you know, they're going from place to place, job to job, loading boxes for Amazon. But is, is there a way to reach out or, you know, is that, is that futile? Well, look, I mean, I think there are some uh, who are never going to be converted. Um, you know, if it's 25% of the country, whatever, they're going to be they're going to be with Trump or with with the grievance or whatever. Let me just say one thing about the, the movie you watch. I haven't seen it, but the idea of the folks moving job to job and, and these things. If you look at the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, these were did not appear to be people who were suffering from economic anxiety. These were people who had the money and the wherewithal to get to Washington, D.C., find themselves a place to live, feed themselves. And, you know, in some cases, where somewhere between five and twenty thousand dollars worth of gear to storm the Capitol. I mean, these were not these were not folks who you know you know you know left the hollow of, of Eastern Kentucky and and thumbed their way east. Uh, that's so kind of a, that, that's kind of a massive generalization, don't you think, Reed? Well, I mean, my point is this: is that is that if there were that many angry people, then millions of people would have marched on Washington. The people who chose to march on Washington, who chose to incite violence. Again, maybe you're right. I probably am overgeneralizing. My point is, is that when Mr. Buffalo Head's main story out of jail was that they wouldn't feed him organic food and he was upset about it, it appears to me that we maybe are overgeneralizing in the other direction, which is not everybody who voted for Trump lives in a Hillbill Elegy book, but in fact, were people who maybe had these longstanding beliefs and Trump opened the door to let them into society. I, you know, I let me. Say, I, I, I just want to say something. Go ahead, Steve. I just want to say something. I, 
first off, it's it's not the case, right, that all 74 million of them would fall into the QAnon camp, right, to the anti-mask camp, right, into the crazy stereotypes of it. So let's say the number is what the number is on the basis of the polls, 32%, you know, support the storming of the Capitol or understand it or whatever the number, right, the, you know, the, the dead enders. Right. I, I'm not particularly interested in understanding um, what, what I'm interested in, in is making sure that they don't attain political power. Right. I, I want them to understand the majority of us in this country. Right. We are the majority. Right. Like and I'll say that again. We are the majority. Right. The president called for unity. Unity does not mean submitting to the delusions of the losers of the election. That's not what unity is. Unity, right, he called for around national purpose, to crush this disease and to defend democracy, right, to grow the economy, to do the things that are necessary to prepare people as best we can for the world that we live in and give them an equal shot at success, right? That's what our politics is. But I want them to understand something on behalf of us, the majority. We live in a 244-year-old constitutional republic that was handed to us through blood sacrifice of 13 generations of Americans who come to us from every nation in the world and who built a great country. We're exceptional not because our people can shout USA the loudest, because this nation of all of the people of all of the nations of the world that come from a people where every language was spoken amongst us, founded an idea, has done more good in the world than all of the other countries of the world put together from the beginning of time. We have fed more people. We have freed more people. We have cured more people. We're the United States of America, and our gift to the world is the idea that a free people can work together and be sovereign and govern themselves. We are trustees of the greatest inheritance that anybody could receive, American citizenship through birth. And those Americans that weren't born here, but are here as Americans today, that took that oath, understand this more acutely than most of us who were born here. But my message to those people is this. We have no compromise to offer you at all. Our goal is to put you into submission, to defeat you, to purge you from our national life, the QAnon conspiracy theorists, the white supremacists, the white nationalists, the racists, the violent militias. Let's stop pretending that they get a seat at the table. Let's stop pretending that they aren't the threat that they are because they've done exactly what they told us they were going to do over and over and over again. And the majority of this country has to understand that what unites us more than whatever divides us on an issue difference is this fundamental belief in the continuation of the American Republic where we decide 
who to give political power to on a temporary basis. And we evaluate it every two years, every four years, and decide what direction we want to go in. We are in charge, not the Trump family. When Matt Gates went out there and he said that Donald Trump is the forever leader of the Republican Party, the leader of the America First movement, right? I hope he forms a patriot party and he splits the Republican Party's power in half. It makes it more difficult for them to win. But understand this, his patriot party, whether he files paperwork or not, it exists. It's a fascistic autocratic movement within the Republican Party. It's the majority within the Republican Party. And that fight, right, is going to be a fight that we are all stakeholders in. And we, and we need to understand that. Um, because if we don't, right, we risk losing an election to people who may not ever give up that power again. I'm gonna let you have the last word, Reed. So one of my one of my favorite musicians is a guy named Jason Isbell from uh, from Alabama, and he has a great song called "Hope the High Road." And one of the lines in that song is, "There can't be more of them than us. There can't be, and there aren't." Well, I think that's a good way to end this conversation, Jennifer, Reed, and Steve. It's great to talk to you all. I could I could have this conversation for another hour, but maybe we can do it again sometime and kind of take the temperature of the country because things seem to be moving so quickly and changing almost by the hour, but it would be fun to, to catch up with you. So I'll talk to my friend, Sue Solomon, and maybe we can do this again. Thank you for having us, Katie. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartRadio and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric, Courtney Litz, and Tyler Klang. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen. Our show producer is Bethann Macaluso. The associate producers are Emily Pinto and Derek Clements. Editing by Derek Clements, Dylan Fagan, and Lowell Berlanti. Mixing by Dylan Fagan. Our researcher is Gabriel Luzer. For more information on today's episode, go to katiecouric.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at katiecouric. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. 
So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.